Let us pray. Father in heaven, one thing we have asked of you, and that we will continue to seek after, that we may dwell in your house all the days of our life, to gaze upon your beauty and to inquire at your temple. So hear us, O Lord, as we call to you, be gracious to us and answer us, for you have said, seek my face, and our hearts say to you now, your face, Lord, do we seek. Please do not hide your face from us, but reveal it to us in the face of Christ Jesus, our Lord. And teach us your way, O Lord, and lead us now on a level path, for we ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me to Psalm 1. To Psalm 1. We've finished our series through the book of Philippians and um, want to take up another series uh, for Christmas in December, and that leaves us some time between the two. Um, And so I always think it's good for us to spend some time in the Psalms. Uh, We are called on in our church order to sing, the Psalms should have the principal place in the singing of God's people. And so we sing a lot of Psalms, and so I always find that in between series especially is a good time to go to the Psalms, to teach us how to read the Psalms, to figure out some of the themes that we find in the Psalms. And so I thought it would be good for us to think about Psalm 1, which in many ways is, is part of an introduction to the whole Psalter. Um, so I want to read Psalm 1 together and to think about it this morning. So let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. I don't know how much you've thought about the Psalms and how much you've uh, thought about going through. I was sort of forced to think a lot about them growing up. It was a, a favorite topic of my father. And so uh, we, we heard a lot about the Psalms when we were growing up. And one of the interesting things about the Psalms is to learn that there is something of a structure to them. Um, he's, he's told us before uh, that, you know, sometimes people think of the Psalms as 150 and you could shuffle them like a deck of cards and just put them in another order and that would just be fine. Uh, but clearly that's not the case. Um, but imagine that was the case and you had a deck of cards and you had all of the 150 Psalms and someone said to you, which one do you think should be number one? Um, which one do you think should be number one? Now we all probably have a Psalm that we really like a psalm that really speaks to us or that we came across in a particular moment of need or a particular moment of praise and thought, that exactly captures where I am right now. Um, and maybe we have one that we particularly like. And if, if we were putting the Psalter together, we would say, that should be number one. Um, and there was an interesting reflection by a commentator saying, why is Psalm 1 Psalm 1? Why isn't another psalm Psalm 1. And I liked how he kind of thought through it. He said, in the church today, we need such help with praise. So why isn't Psalm 150 Psalm 1? 
And we need to learn worship. So why isn't Psalm 100 or Psalm 95 Psalm 1? Or what could be more winsome than plastering the mercy of God across the front page of the Psalter? So why isn't Psalm 103 the first? Or maybe we need to show how attuned the Psalms are to human need and troubles. So why isn't Psalm 73 Psalm 1? Or with a breakdown of family life, maybe Psalm 128 should be here. Or perhaps first off, we need a grand view of the majesty and wonder of God, and we think Psalm 139 should be Psalm 1. So why is Psalm 1 Psalm 1? I I like that kind of reflection. Why is Psalm 1 Psalm 1? Um, And in, in part, it's because Psalm 1 is a psalm of wisdom. We need to know about praise. We need to know about worship. We need to know about God. We need to know about a lot of things. Uh, But for all of them, we need wisdom. And so Psalm 1 is Psalm 1 because it speaks of wisdom, particularly of the individual's need for wisdom in discerning the right path of life. Because what the psalm sets for us, as, as the wisdom literature often sets for us, two paths. Um, we're, we're sort of metaphorically set at a crossroads and shown two paths and, and told, this is the path that leads to life and prosperity. And this is the path that leads to foolishness and death. Sorry that this side of church had to be the foolishness and death side, but someone's got to do it. I'll try to remind them to be the foolishness and death on some other point. Um, but for now, you get to be the way to life, so you, you can all enjoy that. Um, but this, that, that always happens in the wisdom literature, right? This, there's two paths, and there's a path that leads to life. Put them over here. There's a path that leads to life and prosperity, and there's a path that leads to foolishness and death. And it's always setting us setting before us those two paths and saying to us, walk the path that leads to life. Um, And to do that, we need wisdom. Um, And that's what we need to do to walk the right path if we want to be happy. There's a lot of talk in our culture, isn't there, about what what it takes to be happy. Uh, This psalm is, is a psalm about what it takes to be happy. That's another way to translate the first word of this psalm. Happy is the man. Um, So we want to think about this psalm together. What does it take to be happy? If we want to be happy, what do we need to do? And this psalm teaches us those things in a profound way. Um, It sets before us the call to walk in the way of wisdom if we want to be happy. And how are we to do that? Well, the happy man is the one who avoids wickedness, who applies righteousness, and then will abound in blessedness. That's what this psalm puts before us. The the happy man is the one who avoids wickedness, applies righteousness, and abounds in blessedness. Um, The happy man avoids wickedness. That's the first thing we see in this psalm. The passage begins by describing what the happy man, the blessed man, does not do. Um, What does the happy man not do? Well, he does not go with the wicked. Um, That's where it starts out. He disassociates himself with all forms of sin and wickedness. No matter what it is that the wicked do, it's evil. And the happy man, the blessed man, is one who avoids these things. He steers clear of them that he might walk the better path. 
Um, and it's, it's important to note how he avoids the wicked and what kinds of things the wicked try to entrap the righteous into doing. Um, and, it, and it's put in three particular ways. Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Um, it's always sort of interesting to me that that's increasingly involved with the wicked. Right? First you're just walking with them, then you're standing with them, now you're sitting with them. It's kind of the way you see Lot moving towards Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis. When we meet him, he's living in the fields outside of Sodom. And then we meet him, he's living near Sodom. And then he's in the city, and then he's on the city council, right? He's sitting with the wicked. Even though we're told in Scripture that he was a righteous man and it hurt his, his righteous heart to see the wickedness of that city, we see how he, he gets entangled with it. So entangled that he nearly perishes there. Right? And that, that's the way the wicked can kind of entrap us. We're walking with them and all of a sudden we're standing with them and then we're sitting with them. And the righteous man avoids that kind of entanglement. Um, he, invo- he avoids first listening to their counsel. He avoids walking in the counsel of the wicked. Um, counsel specifically refers to the advice or the thinking of the wicked. Right? There's a way that the righteous are called to think, and there's a way that the wicked think. Um, and, and we're constantly bombarded with wicked ways of thinking in this world. Um, and we're told that these wicked ways of thinking are the right side of history. And if you don't go along with these wicked ways of thinking, you're just out of touch. Uh, you're just not caught up with the times. Um, and and this, this psalm rightly tells us, don't fall into that kind of counsel. Don't take advice from the wicked. Don't listen to the way the wicked tell you to think. It's not reliable counsel. And wisdom's always reminding us that the first war we have to wage is for the mind. But that's where the, the wicked are attacking the righteous. That's where they want to, to trick us and say, come and say, let's think about these things together. Um, let, let, me, let me change your mind about how you think. Because you don't want to be closed-minded after all. Well, the Bible says you should be closed-minded to certain things. Um, you should be closed-minded to the advice of the wicked. Um, because as, we've, as we belabored the point, probably, going through Philippians, how often did Paul say, thinking will lead to living? If you have the mind of Christ, it will lead you to follow after Christ. That, that, that Christian thinking led to Christian living and led to Christian glory. That we have to wage that war for the mind because whatever shapes our thinking is going to shape our lives. We're reminded here that the blessed man avoids thinking the way that the world thinks. Um, now, why do I keep saying the blessed man? Um, half the church might be feeling left out at this point. Um, why are we saying the blessed man? Well, not just because this psalm is focusing on men, right? Women need to be living these kinds of lives too. That's not what the psalmist is saying. But the psalms often are talking about the man to remind us that what God's people really need is not just to live like this in their individual lives, but to have a king who will live like this. The Psalms are also talking about what kind of king you're looking for. 
And that's what, that's what the man is reminding us of. And that's why we don't want to lose it to try to be more inclusive. This is obviously speaking to men and to women, but in a particular way it's saying, this is not what just godly people need. This is what we're looking for in a king. This is what God's people want in a king. Someone who, when he hears the counsel of wicked people, will not, will not walk with that. Um, you want a godly king to listen to God and to ignore wicked advice. I always think of that when King Ahab wants to go attack a certain place and he gets all of his prophets to tell him, yeah, go ahead, you'll be successful. And the, you know, the righteous king from Judah is standing there listening to all of this and he says, and Ahab says, see, wait, see, the Lord wants us to go do this. And the king listens to all of that and says, is there a prophet of the Lord here that we could inquire of? What does, what does the king realize in that moment? This is all the advice of wicked people. I can't listen to this. Is there someone who actually speaks for the Lord here? That shows a certain amount of wisdom. The, the waging the war for the mind and saying, don't take advice from the wicked. Their advice needs to be ignored and so does their way. Right? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners. Um, it's, that's moving from the thoughts, the advice, to the practices and the actions. The way is referring to how they live, their, their life, their manner of living. Um, when Jonah goes to preach to Nineveh, he tells them, he's told to tell them to repent of its evil ways. Uh, to, prevent, to repent of the evil ways in which it's living. And so when the psalm comes and says not to stand in the way of sinners, means not to imitate their practices and actions, not to live lives the way they live. Again, you see the connection between thinking and doing. If you walk with them and listen to them, you might stand with them and do what they do. And we're called not to do that either. The blessed man avoids not just the way they think, but the way they live, their practices and their actions. And he avoids sitting in the seat of scoffers. Being that this is a wisdom psalm, we, we're not surprised to see someone like the scoffers appear in it. Uh, we, we have the scoffers appearing occasionally in the, in the Proverbs, in the wisdom literature. And the scoffer is the worst kind of fool. Of all the fools of the fools in the wisdom literature, the scoffer is the worst kind of fool. Um, he's the one who just sits back and cr crosses his arms and smirks at righteousness and good living. And looks down his nose at it and just thinks it's all foolishness. Uh, the scoffer is the worst kind of fool. One commentator said, his mischief is not the random mischief of the fool, but the deeper damage of the debunker and the deliberate troublemaker, impressing the impressionable with his bad attitudes. Now, the scoffer is the worst kind of mocker, scorner, um, scorns the things that are right. And the righteous man is warned here not to keep company with that kind of person. Not to sit in the seat of scoffers, to enjoy the company of this kind of open and notorious character, right? Because that kind of attitude will bleed into how you think. 
if you sit around listening to people who are scoffers. Um, That's the worst kind of fool, and the righteous cannot keep comfortable company with the scoffer. The blessed man avoids all of these things. And the calling to avoid all of these things in our, in our thoughts, in our actions, uh, in our com- comfortable company is not a call to withdraw from the world. Right? Some people have taken that turn and said, all right, if you've got to get away from the wicked, let's get away from the wicked altogether. Let's go live as hermits somewhere. Um, let's just try to get away from the world. Well, we need this advice because there is no way to get away from the world. We're in the world. We're surrounded by the wicked. Uh, there's There's no two ways about it. What we need not is separation from the world in that sense, but to learn how to live in this world, how to navigate this world that is surrounded by people who think these ways. It's particularly because we live in this world that we need this kind of wisdom, that we can walk the right path and navigate the way that we need to go. Because because how the wicked operate is not always in, 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 in your face, right? The, the, the devil doesn't come to us with horns and a pitchfork, right? Obvious and open. He, he comes masquerading as an angel of light. He used subtle temptations, right? He doesn't, he doesn't first come roaring into the garden as a lion ready to devour Adam and Eve. What does he come with? Just a subtle question. Did God really say that? There's a subtlety there. I like what one commentator said, the lure of the wicked does not usually appear in its grossest form. The lure of the wicked simply suggests that if you don't think this way, you will not be thought smart. If you don't act this way, you will not be thought cool. If you don't laugh at what we mock, no one's going to want any part of you. But it comes in subtle ways. That's why we need wisdom. It comes not from devils. It comes from teachers and professors. It comes from family members. It comes from friends. Uh, we can't avoid the world, but we have to avoid the world's ways of living, of thinking, and we can't keep comfortable company with them. And for that, we can just look at the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was never taken in by the thinking of the world. He never took the counsel of the world in that sense. He was always able to see clearly what his father wanted him to do and to walk in the counsel of his father. That's why he's the ideal king that's personified really in this psalm. This psalm is not only about Jesus, but Jesus perfectly fulfills this psalm as the blessed man. The one who truly does not walk in the counsel of the wicked who never took advice from the wicked. And when the devil himself came to tempt him, always turned him away. Refused to draw into his thinking, refused to enter into that kind of life. And it wasn't because Jesus avoided the world. He was in the world every day. The only holy man in a world full of sinners. Um, And he walked the right path. Never was entangled by the world's thinking or actions and never kept comfortable company with the world. You know, sometimes in, in, our appeal, in people's appeals for us to be in the world so that we might share with the world the good news of the gospel, sometimes people will say, you know, well, Jesus sat with prostitutes and tax collectors, and we need to be going out and doing that same thing. Um, 
But, but it's almost as if sometimes the way they say that is we should be willing to just kind of keep comfortable company with sinners. And I, I always think to myself, that had to be the most uncomfortable day that those prostitutes and tax collectors ever had was when Jesus came over. Because there you would be in your wickedness confronted by a holiness that would not in any way give any ground to you in how you lived and thought. It's caused a lot of sad reflection on my own part to say, if I had been in the world when Jesus was in the world, I don't think I would have liked him very much because he would have always called me out in my sin and wickedness. I would have thought, can you just go away? I don't want to hear about all my failures all the time. Right, that says something about my heart. And, you know, I always think th- those encounters must have gone the encounter the way with the, that went with the woman at the well. Right? Where is your husband? Well, he's not around. I don't have a husband. Well, yeah, the one you have is not your husband. Right? And, and why does he press in on her like that? Not so that he could just leave her ashamed in her sin. Say, you know, you come here to drink water. I can give you a water, living springs that you'll drink and never be thirsty again. Jesus never pressed in on them just to shame them, but they didn't keep comfortable company with Jesus. That would have been an uncomfortable moment to be sitting as a sinner in the presence of a blessed man. Um, and Jesus kept that kind of company with the world so that no, no scoffer could have sat with Jesus and been comfortable. Because Jesus would not have mocked the things the scoffer mocked or thought it was in any way funny. And how did he avoid wickedness? How are we to avoid wickedness? Well, by applying righteousness. That's what this psalm says. How do we avoid thinking and acting and keeping comfortable company with the world? It's by always setting the law of God before us. Right? The, the blessed man is not the one who do, does all these things, but in verse 2, we're not going to take as much time to go through every one of these verses, um, but in verse 2, he says, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The righteous man avoids wickedness by applying righteousness, by applying to himself the law of God. Now, we use the law of God in a lot of different ways. Right? Sometimes we say the law of God, we mean the Ten Commandments. Sometimes we talk about the law of God when we're talking about the distinction between the law and the gospel. The, the law where God commands us to do things and the gospel that tells us what has been done for us. Uh, sometimes we use the law in that way. Um, and how is the law of God being used here? Well, here it's being used in a much broader sense. We might say the whole counsel of God. Everything that God has said. Um, that is what the righteous man, the blessed man, delights in. He takes everything that God has said and delights in everything um, because it's God's law that informs the way he should go. It's the whole counsel of God that instructs us on how we should live. Right? That's, that's why we don't go through the Bible with scissors and say, you can read this part and you can skip that part. This will be good for you. You can leave this part alone. No, what the Bible tells us, it's all inspired by God. It's all profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training up in righteousness. We need the whole counsel of God to live life. And we're told that the righteous man delights in that law. 
He delights in that law. He follows that law. It's that law that helps him to think as God thinks, to act as God wants him to act, that keeps him in company with the righteous. There's a company of scoffers you can sit with. There's also a congregation of the righteous that's talked about in verse 5. The congregation of the righteous is where you will find this man who delights in the law of God. I mean, he not only delights in it, but he meditates on it day and night. Um, now, what is meant here by the fact that he meditates on it day and night? Is this, is this a lesson for morning and evening devotions? Is that what's being gotten at here? No, this is a literary device by which you're saying morning and evening and everything in between. That's what the righteous man does. He, he, he does it morning and evening and everything in between. He's always meditating on the word of God. And as you probably heard before, this word meditating sort of means muttering or, or speaking it back again and again to keep you through going through in your life, that you're always speaking it back to yourself and having it on the tip of your tongue as you go out in the world. The way we sometimes do if someone gives us instructions or directions. My parents were out of town and they said, you know, the solar guy is going to install the solar system and not the solar system, but the the solar panels. And uh, that would have been a big task. Um, But he's going to put it on and and then they're going to give me instructions on how to turn it on. And I thought, well, great, I'll blow up the whole house when I get this wrong. And so he tells you, these are the, you know, three or four steps you need to take to turn it on. And I kept repeating those to myself to make sure I had it down. Well, that's what we're supposed to do with the word of God. We have it on our hearts, we have it on our minds so that we can repeat it to ourselves and apply it to our lives. That's what it means to meditate on it day and night so that we have it and can make use of it. I think we see that really clearly in the instruction that was given to Joshua, one of the first leaders to have the word of God to be able to guide him. Right before that, there wasn't a word written down. Now he has a word before him, the law that Moses gave. And what does God say in in Joshua 1 verse 8? This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Um, or what I like from Psalm 119.11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Do you see how the, the, the happy man, the righteous man, he delights in the law of God, he meditates on it day and night so that it can be of use to him in the world. So it cannot just be in his heart and on his mind, but can be applied in life. So it finds its way into how he lives and how he acts. Right? It's, we, we know that, right? That it's not enough to have it in our hearts and our minds if it never comes out in our lives. That, that something has gone wrong if it's in our minds but not in our lives. That the point of having it in the heart is so that it works itself out in the life. And again, what do we see in our Lord Jesus Christ? He is the man who delights in the word of his Father. And that is his his meditation day and night. He speaks to his Father. He lives the word of his Father. He's always praying. He's always repeating it. 
In fact, in the most dire times of his life, when he's been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights and the devil comes directly to tempt him, where does he go for his refuge? It is written. He has it on his mind, in his heart, and it's applied in his life. When he's starving and he's told, why don't you make these rocks into bread? What does he say? I don't live by bread alone. I live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He's able to apply it and check the devil's advance. The same thing he's able to do in the other temptations. Even when the devil tries to use the word against him. He's able to use the word to counter that false use of the word of God. Why? Because it's on his heart and it's on his mind. And it's on his lips and it's in his life. And we see that maybe in the, in the most difficult of his tests the most clearly. That when, when he has the wrath of his father being poured out on him on the cross, where does his mind and heart go? It goes to the word. When he's trying to, to capture his sense of forsakenness, where does he go? He goes to Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right When he thirsts, his mind is going to Psalm 69. And with his dying breath, he goes to Psalm 31. Into your hands I commit my spirit. He's applying that righteousness to his life in the way that he thinks, in the way that he acts. And the psalm promises that those who do this abound in blessedness. Right? There's two paths. There's two kinds of people. There's something the happy man doesn't do. There's something he does do. And where does that lead? Well, verse 3 tells us, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. It's a wonderful picture of abounding blessedness. They lived in a very arid place like we do. There weren't a lot of streams of water that were always dependable. This is probably talking about living on an irrigation canal. Um, Because water didn't always flow there. But usually water is always flowing through irrigation canals. And the image here is like a fruit tree that's planted by a reliable source of water. A source of water that's always flowing. And because it's always flowing, the tree is always fed. And because the tree is always fed, the tree is always producing fruit. But that's the wonderful picture that's given here of the righteous man. He abounds in prosperity. He's planted by God. And he's fed by God. And he's fruitful on account of God. That's why righteous people abound in blessedness. Because they're planted by God. And they're fed by God. And they bear the fruit that God works through them. Um, You need that channel of ever-flowing grace if you're going to be fruitful. You need that channel of ever-flowing grace always replenishing the roots of the tree that God has planted. That's how we bear fruit. We're not like Jesus. We don't have the power within us. We need a power supplied to us. And that's the promise here. That the righteous man is like a tree who's planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, 
His leaf doesn't wither. In all that he does, he prospers. And maybe you'll say, I thought we didn't believe in the prosperity gospel. We don't. Wisdom literature is always saying this is the natural byproduct of righteousness. This, this is wisdom 101 for us. This is what's usually true. You do what's right, you prosper. You do what's wrong, you die. Um, that's what wisdom literature is always teaching us, the basics. Now we can get more advanced. There will be other psalms that get more advanced. I'm righteous and I'm suffering. Why? There will be other books of the Bible that get more advanced. Job. Um, so there will be time for wisdom 201, 301, 401, master's course levels on suffering and understanding righteousness. But here we're establishing the basics. You want to be blessed? You want to be happy? Do what God calls you to do. Live the way God calls you to live. That's the way to true happiness. That's the way to be established by the Lord. And there's another agricultural Metaphor used here for those who are not established by the Lord. It's a much briefer one. It's spelled out in verse 4. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Chaff was that little shell around the, wheat, the kernel of wheat, and they used to separate it by just throwing it up in the air because the chaff would separate from the kernel, the kernel would fall down, and it would blow away. Now, we in Southern California maybe don't know much about wheat and chaff, um, but if you've ever been to a baseball game and had a peanut, you crack it open and there's that little reddish-brown skin on the peanut. You run through your fingers and it blows right away. blows over on, the, on your friend next to you. Um, that's what chaff is like, boys and girls. Like that little skin around the peanut that you just run it through your fingers and it just is gone. And the Bible's saying that's what the wicked are like. The righteous are like planted trees that are always there, always bearing fruit, always living. And the wicked are like that little bit of chaff just blows away. It's a clear picture of where the righteous go and the way the, wit- the wicked go and which one you want to be. Um, you want to be the tree that's planted, the tree that lives like the tree in Psalm 92, 12 through 15. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like the cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no righteousness in him. Um, it's the choice between those being those who are planted, always fed, always fruitful, and those who just blow away. There's no root, there's no life, there's no fruit, there's no hope for the wicked. That's why they can't stand in the judgment. We don't only apply this wickedness, this, this rule about righteousness and wickedness to this life. The psalm is a reminder there's a judgment coming. There's a judgment coming. And the righteous will stand in the judgment and the wicked will fall in the judgment. That's also what's being held out to the people of God. That's what the king in Israel needed to be reminded of. You might be the king, but there's still a judgment coming. You still are subject to authority. And will you be the righteous king that stands, or will you be the wicked king that falls? 
in every person, every person in Israel and in the church today is being reminded of that. There's a judgment coming. It's only the blessed man who can stand in the judgment. Verse 5, Therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Why? Because they are not planted. Therefore they will not stand in the judgment. But the Lord knows the ways of the righteous. The Lord knows our paths. Lord knows where we're walking in this life. And the promise to his people is he knows and he's there to love and care for us in the paths that we are walking. The way of the righteous is hard in this life. Jesus didn't promise us an easy road. But it is a way that leads to life. It's a hard road, but it leads to life. And Christ promises us that he'll be there with every step with us every step of the way on this road. So we don't know what the next step is in our life on this road. We don't know if we're stepping into difficulty and suffering, but the Lord promises that he'll be there. And we don't know if the next step is into wonderful life and blessedness. We know the Lord will be there. But whatever comes, the Lord promises he knows the way of the righteous. And that even though the way of the wicked will perish, the way of the righteous will always flourish. Because God cares about every step that we're taking on our way. And the God who has not forsaken us yet will not forsake us in the future. So if we want to be happy in this life, we have to walk as Jesus walked. And where did his life end? It didn't end on the cross. That was the most difficult step in the way, but it wasn't the end. Where did it end? Glory. The name that's above every name. That's where the path of the righteous ends. And we can be confident if we walk that way with our Lord, we will be there also. Prospering as the happy person. So let's walk on that way and ask for God's grace to keep us in that way always. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for sending us a king like Jesus, who is the blessed man of Psalm 1, who always walked in the righteous way and always put aside the way of the wicked. Help us to walk after his example. Thank you that he is our king, that he is leading us and guiding us in the path that we should walk, for we know that we could never find it ourselves. But we thank you that you've given grace to lead us in the way that we should go and have promised us the blessedness and happiness that comes from walking with you. So Lord, help us and plant us firmly by the ever-flowing channel of your grace, that we may live forever in productive and prosperous service to you. And hear our prayers, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.